So uh, this morning we're continuing an Easter tide series. If you're not part of a liturgical tradition, you might not know, but Easter actually lasts several, several weeks. And uh, this is Easter tide that we're in here. What are we in the fifth week of Easter tide this morning? And um, we're in a series related to that. Uh, and it's called simply presence, just the word presence. And the idea and the theme around that is that we're looking at what, what does it look like for us right now today in this very moment to be able to interact with the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Christ. Because we can read the stories in the Gospels, we can see how Jesus interacted with other people, but today, how do we interact with the Christ? And we're, we're well along into that series, and one of the things that I hope about this series, if you're, if you're listening to it along the way, that every week you get a sense of that, oh, this is it, this is how I interact with Jesus now, and then the next week you hear something that makes you think totally different about that. So last week we talked about this uh, generous love and action, that when you engage in this action, that the presence of Christ meets you there when you love others sacrificially and generously. And this morning, in a lot of ways, it almost seems like the inverse. So we look at this scripture, uh, the word abide was used last week in the, in the scripture from 1 John, and it's used this week as well. There is an idea of the presence of Christ being something that you go to and, and abide in, be present with, and then that produces the actions or the fruit. So it's almost like the inverse. So uh, if you haven't listened to last week's message and you really want to um, have your spiritual status quo disrupted, listen to both of these sermons and think about um, how those work together and the... Uh, the variety of ways that this idea of interacting with the presence of God is contained in the scriptures. So, when I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about the illustrations used, it reminded me, or it made me think of, this idea of atrophy. This idea that when something isn't used, like a muscle isn't used, it it tends to degrade in quality and strength. And it's not that that muscle doesn't have the capacity to be what it was meant to be, and at one time it actually was, but it's just from lack of use, the body st stops sending as much to it and it just degrades. It starts to get weaker and smaller, decreases. And I was thinking about, for me, a few years ago, I had a, I had a really bad accident. Uh, in the gym, I was lifting weights, and I completely separated my pectoralis major, which is your biggest chest muscle, you have two sides of it, completely separated it from my shoulder tendon. And after surgery, where they reconnected it, I had to have my arm in a sling for six weeks straight. And even when I showered and when I got dressed, I had to keep my arm basically in the same position as much as I possibly could. It would be out of the question unless I wanted another surgery to move my arm even close to above my shoulder. So after those six weeks were over and I took the sling off and went to the doctor and got approved to have that sling off, 
Um, the first few days, my arm and, and my chest and everything felt very vulnerable, like it was exposed in some way. I got so used to, to wearing that sling. And then uh, I was getting dressed one morning, and I put my shirt on, and uh, I was you know, checking, making sure it was a button-up shirt, and I was making sure all my buttons were done. And I looked, and I saw my arm from the side. It was this one, and I was like, whose arm is that? That ain't my arm. Like, that just looks like a guy who's, you know, I've been lifting weights since I was a teenager, pretty much, like on a regular basis. I'm like, that guy doesn't work out. Who's got that arm right there? And the thing is, my arm had atrophied. It hadn't been used. It had been just sitting there in a sling. So even though my arm was capable of, of growing and developing muscles, simply from six weeks of a lack of use, it started to depreciate, <laughs> so to speak. And, and I think um, that, that seems to be something that Christ is drawing the disciples' attention to in this passage. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we're looking at uh, these verses together and thinking about this idea of atrophy. It seems that in this world that we live in, that things tend to either be growing or dying. They either seem to be expanding we're wasting away, that there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle room. And I know all of us can probably think about ways we felt like we've atrophied in the last year, right? So this is a very relevant passage to us if our lives and the quality of our lives have changed at all in the past year. So let's take a look at these scriptures. And as we do, I'm going to draw us to a couple of ideas here that Jesus here is talking about disciples producing fruit. And so, um, how do we keep from atrophying spiritually? Those who are calling ourselves followers of Christ, how do we keep ourselves from spiritually atrophying? And I want to present two ideas. One is that we must bring ourselves to Christ. We must abide with Christ to receive the love of Christ. Yeah, well, how do you do that? And then when we bring ourselves to Christ and we receive that love, then we can then give it to others. So, um, first, like I said, in verse 8, this is to people who consider themselves disciples or followers of Jesus, that Jesus is speaking specifically to. That doesn't mean that this whole sermon will only apply to somebody who considers themselves a follower of Jesus, but I want you to know that right now, that the words Jesus is speaking are meant specifically to disciples. He says in verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples, which a synonym for disciples is follower. So let's look at the first couple verses here. John 15, verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. So I'm looking at this, and there's a couple things that I realize here. I'm, I'm kind of going to move through the, the scripture here quick and kind of just break it down and then go into those uh, those questions and those ideas I mentioned, those two. Um, so Jesus says there's, you, there, that uh, there can be a branch in him as the vine, and it can bear no fruit. And in verse 2 he says, it is taken away or is lifted up. So the interesting thing here is that this word, the original language here is Greek, and that this word that is translated in your Bibles as probably uh, cuts off, in the beginning of verse 2, he cuts off every branch, is this word ero, and it can mean to remove, 
to carry off, to carry away. And it also, in the same way, the way the Greek works, is it can mean to raise up, to elevate, or to lift up from the ground. And we see it used in both ways, even in John's gospel, in, in both of those ways. And so when you look at the way people interpret this verse, you see a variety of ways that people interpret the verse, one way or the other. And I want you to just think about this for a moment. We'll come back to this verse and how this plays into the rest of this, the passage. But I, but I want you to think about this. If you, if you have that choice in front of you for thinking about Jesus talking to his disciples, talking to you if you consider yourself a disciple, how would you interpret that? Would you interpret that as Jesus saying um, that the gardener raises up and lifts up the branch, which we're talking about uh, a grape uh, plant, so the vine and the branches. And what happens with a, a grape vine is the branches grow and they'll get heavy and they'll start to sag and fall to the ground. And so the vine dresser will either decide to cut that branch off if it doesn't look good, if it's diseased, if it's not healthy looking, that kind of thing, or the gardener will lift it up and put it on a trestle, a trellis, um, and uh, allow it to not drag into the dirt, okay? So in this scripture here, Jesus says, I'm the vine, my father's the gardener. Verse two, he lifts up or he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So I want you to think about that. Just on the, on, on the first turn of that, thinking about the illustration there, which, which way does the God of your imagination do it? Does he see the branch with no fruit and cut it off? Or does he lift it up and make sure that it gets into different conditions in order to be able to bear fruit? Depending on how you answer that question, that probably determines a lot of the rest of how you'll be able to look at this passage and think about and even put yourself into a position to be able to receive the love of God. Because here's what I know, and we talked about this some last week. You can be on the receiving end of love from somebody and not be able to accept it. You can. I've, I've done it many of times. I even sort of did it this morning when uh, Diane gave me a compliment and I, I kind of like brushed it off and, and didn't quite let it hit me. Because uh, it's scary sometimes to receive love. And depending on how we view and the perspective that we have of the scriptures, sometimes we can put ourselves in a position to do what is comfortable rather than what helps us grow. Because to be honest, friends, all of us have areas of our hearts that it's more comfortable for those things to let them atrophy than it is to let them grow, even though those things hurt us in the long run. So, let's keep taking a look here. Let's see how this progresses and what all is being said here. So, we've got this, uh, this illustration, this metaphor, that uh, Jesus is saying he's the branch, or the vine, and, and we're the branches as disciples that grow off of this, this grapevine. And there's two things that happen. It says that the branch that is in him that doesn't bear fruit is either 
cut off, taken away, or lifted up. And then the second part of the verse, it says, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Verse three, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And, and when he talks about those two, I just think for myself, like, yep, that's the one I want. I want that second one, the one that's pruned and that becomes more fruitful. I don't even want to deal with the potential dichotomy of that second one. I don't want to be in, uh, in fear of being cut off by God. Wow, that sounds really bad and very dramatic. And I'm having to think about this in the context of being a disciple. So it says, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Another interesting Greek word, and I'm sorry, if this is your first time here, I don't, I'm not always this teachy about things, right? Some, we got different kinds of, of things going on here. So, and some of you are like, finally, he's talking about Greek words. Probably like Ben Hancock is thinking that, right? Um, so there, there's a Greek word here that's translated prune, and it's like, a, in the Greek, it's kathero. And that word means to cleanse. And when talking about pruning, it specifically means like, on a, on a branch, you have like all these little vines that pop up, all these little branches that pop up, and you kind of like prune away some of the smaller ones so the bigger ones can kind of keep growing so that those things can produce fruit and energy is not going to all these different places that aren't, uh, aren't valuable. So it's really interesting because uh, in, this, in this verse here, this prune word kind of has a double meaning. It's like the branch you know, is being pruned and cleaned at the same time. And we can even think about that as like being cleansed from our sins in a way. It's like Jesus is playing on that word and that term there. So a branch in Jesus can bear some good fruit and God can prune or clean it so it bears more. I'm starting to wonder though, like what is this fruit exactly, right? So in verse four, he says, remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So when we look at this, it's a lot of repetition here. Essentially, Jesus is telling us, hey, you can only have a fruitful discipleship life with union with me, with Christ. And that without this union, this abiding, this presence with Christ, the fruit of a disciple atrophies. It goes away. It's not as present. Um, It disappears. So what is this fruit? This abiding in Christ. Those of you really Bible literate people will say, well, it's Jamin, it's the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's Galatians 5.22. It's, it's joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And I think that's true, but I want to stay in the text here and see where Jesus is going with this and see how this relates to abiding and the fruit specifically that he is talking about here. So he says in verse 6, if you do not remain in me, You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up. It's again, this atrophy, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Now, 
This part of the passage, um, it, it's scary to me. There's a scary part to this. It says, uh, you know, if we, if we don't remain in Christ, it's like a branch that's thrown away and withers, okay? I get that. That makes sense. Like taking the atrophy example and, and continuing to go with it. But then, uh, then it's like, oh, but this branch is then picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. And I'm like, okay, immediately I'm thinking of hell now, right? I'm thinking of this idea of hell here and that um, if, I'm not, if I'm not somehow figuring out the right way to abide when I'm, ra- when I'm waking up at 5.50 every morning with my baby Xavier ready to roll, he's ready to roll and play and trying to help my other kids stay asleep and being woken up in the night by strange noises and doorbells ringing and trying to figure out how to live life in a pandemic with my wife. If I don't manage all that well and I don't produce the right kind of fruit, I'm going to shrivel up and die and then be thrown into hell. Wow. That's, uh, that's not good news to me. I don't know about you, but uh, that's not something that I find comfort in. But what I do understand and what does make sense in this passage to me is that if I find myself in a fruitless situation, that it makes a lot of sense that I would atrophy as a disciple. That there are things that if I know, if I learn how emotionally, spiritually, physically to abide in Christ, this is what part of being a disciple is, is to learn how to do this, then I can be fruitful. And I was having a conversation uh, with a new believer uh, here at Christ City last week, and we were talking about purpose and, and feelings of purposelessness. And when we look at this passage, we're getting to this point here. Jesus is about to tell us what this fruit is. He's basically going to explain it as love. We're about to read these passages here. And, and I want to argue in just a moment that this metaphor is showing us that our purpose as disciples, the fruit that we are to produce is love. And that without love, just like the famous passage used in so many weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, that the rest of what we do is like a shriveled up branch that's good for firewood and not much else. So, even though this wasn't in the lectionary, I'm going to read I'm going to read a few more verses here, starting in verse 9. I'm going to read to verse 12. So if you want to follow along, you can, uh, just following in the next few verses there and getting some insight into this fruit. Verse 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, so so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. So Jesus is moving a little less metaphorically here, a little more concrete, a little more realistic uh, uh, tangible, I should say, because we're not vines, we're not branches. Uh, verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I, has kept, I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. All right, so we're getting into this commands place again, but let's keep reading. I've told you this so that my, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Ah, ah. So we're getting all these lines about commands here, and no doubt your mind's filling with all kinds of different ideas about what that means. And then, spoiler alert, 
Wow, I just said that with like five extra syllables. How did that happen? I need some water. Um, spoiler alert, there we go. The command that he's talking about is to love each other in a very specific way, as I have loved you. So this is what it means to produce the fruit in this passage here. It's to remain in the love that you've received from Jesus so that then you can produce the fruit of loving others. So simple, right? Except for the fact, for me anyway, that I couldn't receive a compliment this morning, much much less some blindingly brilliant love of God. So that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes next, is how do we do that? How do I put myself in the position to do this well, to receive the love of God, to receive this love that's expressed through creation, through food, through sunshine, through art, through music, through Jesus, who laid down his life for us. So, I want to be loved by God, don't you? Don't you? Yeah, of course you do. We all do. We're all born wanting that love and that connection. And we're all also born knowing we don't have it. Some call this original sin. So, you know, did you know that when you were born, your emotional center of your brain is almost fully formed? That you have this part of your brain that that beautiful baby boy right there is already almost fully formed called your limbic brain. It's the seat of your emotions. It's where you feel loneliness and sadness and gladness and anger and fear, all of these things. And when you're born, you can feel all those things. And the thinking, reasoning part of your brain isn't fully formed until you're 25 years old. So that means you're much more born a feeling person than a thinking person. And as we grow up, we immediately reach out for the things our feelings tell us we need. I'm scared of the dark. Will you turn the light on? Will you stay with me until I fall asleep? Will you put a night light on? I'm lonely. Will you come do this with me? I'm afraid. Will you be by beside me? My son, Xavier, uh, he'll be two, June 26th, and he just, he has no problem communicating the things that he wants and needs from me. And so, in the mornings, at 5.50 in the morning, when he wakes up, and if he bursts out of his room uh, before I can stop him and wake up other people, uh, and me and my wife take turns doing that, um, he'll say, come on, daddy, come on, daddy, and he'll run over to the train set, and he sits down, and he fully expects I'm just going to come and play with him. He is ready to receive love that he needs that he wants, that he was born wanting and needing. But somewhere along the way, it becomes hard for us, or at least for me, I don't know about you, to receive love and certain kinds of compliments and things like that. And part of it is because as we get older and as my children get older, I will fail them in love. I'll fail them. They will not get everything that they are born desiring and needing love-wise from me. They just won't, because I didn't get it either. And I recognize the lack within me. And this, is, and this is the whole 
point. This is this whole idea of atrophy. We're born fully aware of what we need and that we're not directly connected to the source that can give us what we need. And so this makes it hard to receive love. It's one of the things. As this intensifies, as we grow up, something else begins to come into play. We begin to believe there are other substitutes, that there's something, some magic item, some sacred thing that is going to give us the sense of satisfaction, the sense of need to relieve that hole that we have and make us happy, make us feel like maybe we're loved or maybe we don't need to be loved in the way that Xavier knows he should be right now. It's like those car commercials. You you ever see one of those car commercials where like the celebrity is driving the car like Matthew McConaughey, I know Matt likes Matthew McConaughey. I know there's one he's driving, he's driving this sweet SUV, I don't know if it's a Cadillac or what, but he's driving it and like the sun is starting to set and he's like narrating it in his, you know, iconic Matthew McConaughey voice and I don't don't even know what he's saying, it doesn't even matter. It just kind of lulls you into this, that's what will satisfy me. Yeah, that'll do it, that'll do it. And I don't know what that might be for you. I know it's something. I know it could be a relationship, success in a career, a certain amount of money, certain sort of prestige, the way somebody you want somebody to view you. And you imagine that this thing will fill you up. And here's where I want us to come back to this cutting off branch thing, this throwing into the fire thing, all this kind of stuff is one of the people that Jesus is talking to right now is Peter. That's one of the people Jesus is talking to. This is in the last 18 hours of Jesus' life before the crucifixion right here. And what's about to happen is Peter is about to watch Jesus get uh, arrested and interrogated and sentenced to death. And while that's going on, Peter is going to deny that he's a follower of Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, because he's scared to death. It's one thing. But there's another thing here, too. And this happens all the time. And I actually think it's just kind of part of the process that we go through as people of faith. You see, he, he believed Jesus was going to be like that car commercial. He believed that Jesus was coming to save him from the world instead of save him unto the world. So when it came time and he saw that Jesus wasn't going the way he thought it was going to go, that Jesus wasn't going to be that magical totem, that item that was going to save him from his need, his need, his deep need, his embarrassing, shameful need of love, He denied him. It's hard to receive love from a crucified Messiah when you're expecting something else, when you're expecting a sweet ride in an SUV and all your needs and desires and hard feelings going away. Did Jesus cut him off? Did Jesus raise from the dead and say, you denied me, bro. You're you're a vine that doesn't produce fruit. You're gone, buddy. Is that what happened if you know the story? No, of course not. 
In fact, Jesus cooks Peter breakfast, gives him some fish. He's a fisherman. He's like, here's a whole bunch of fish. And by the way, I got some already on the grill over here. Come on over. Let's eat and let's have a talk. Let's have a conversation, Peter, because I know things are a little confusing for you right now because you thought it was going to be one way and it ended up another way. I know this happened. This happened for me and my relationship with how I viewed God. I thought that when I came to Christ, when I came to salvation, that it was going to be if I figured it out, if I ran the numbers properly, if I got enough steps in, if I followed close enough, if I thought hard enough, if I prayed hard enough, that I would get that sunset car ride, that Jesus was going to deliver me, save me up from the world, and somehow I would be complete and I wouldn't have these needs, these shameful needs of just needing to be loved and accepted and desiring and hoping for deeper relationship. And it didn't happen. So, last chapter of the book of John, same gospel that, we, that we've been reading, verse, uh, tw- uh, chapter 21, verses 15. Jesus has made dinner, made breakfast for everybody, and... Uh, they're wiping their mouths, you know, that's some good fish, making small talk with the resurrected Jesus who just cooked them, cooked them some breakfast, right? And they're trying to act like, kind of like things are normal somewhat, you know, just like, oh man, I got, still got a bone stuck in my teeth and all that. And then all of a sudden Jesus is like, all right, it's time to talk serious. So verse 15, he says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? That's Peter's original name. He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So, Peter has gone through a transition, and Jesus is guiding him through the rest of this transition, this process of being able to both give and receive love. Jesus dies on the cross, comes back. He confronts Peter with his denial. He doesn't say, you're done, you're off the team, you're out of here, you you didn't abide in me, you didn't trust me, you didn't believe me. But he confronts Peter with this realization that Peter is having. That Jesus isn't this magic MacGuffin. It's not this sacred item. He's not going to solve all Peter's problems and and pull him out of the world or establish some kind of uh, reign where all the Jews get to be in charge and be like what the Romans are to them. But that Jesus is actually inviting Peter into this life of sacrificial love. And Peter is saying yes to it over and over. He realizes 
that what he thought he loved Jesus for wasn't really, wasn't really it. That wasn't really what it was about. As, 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 as Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. It's followed by, okay, now go feed my sheep. Go do what I have done. Go lead the next group through this painful experience of learning to live in this world, being saved to it. At the end of this moment, Jesus says, just to make sure it's clear for Peter, hey, this ain't, your life ain't going to end up real happy for you. Like, you're, you're going to get locked up. You're not going to get to decide how and when you go. Follow me. Follow me anyway. So, Peter has to move through this experience of accepting Jesus, abiding, being with, staying with what he thought Jesus would be, only to be incredibly disappointed, only to find himself denying Jesus altogether. This whole idea of abiding, of presence, we've been talking about this the whole series. And it's this idea of being where you're at. You ever, you, ever, you ever been with somebody? Of course you have. You ever been with somebody that's talking about something difficult they're going through? And in your mind, you can't wait for them to stop talking so you can just give them some advice so you don't have to feel how scary it is that this person's in front of you and has these needs that you really can't do anything about and that you've been in other situations and you're giving them advice that doesn't work for you anyway. That's an inability when we're there to be present. Jesus is looking Peter in the face and saying, you're going to continue to experience all of these difficult things about being human. And I've shown you how to do it. I've shown you how to be human. I've shown you how to abide, to stay present. So follow me. Do that for others. Show them. Produce fruit. Earlier we read this. In verse 8, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. So how do we receive love from God? How do we receive the love of Christ? We put ourselves in a position, no matter what we might think or feel, to be honest with God. For Peter, it was going through denial. For me, it was going through a sense of denial that even in this passage here, it says, if you, if you abide in me and you ask of anything, it will be given for you. And I've talked to God about those things. And I've said, that is not true, man. That's not true. I don't understand that. Why is this happening? I've tried my hardest. The only thing that I could do was be present with God. And that meant not getting cut off, but I got to be in Peter's position. 
I got to be someone denying what I thought Jesus was supposed to be. What I thought I was supposed to get from this whole thing. And what I've found that the more that I've been able to do that as I journey through my faith, you know, in the beginning, the, the grace, the salvation, that one-time sort of prayer and event, that was, that was all I needed to sustain me. But as I grew, I needed more. I needed more depth. I needed to abide more in the living God, and that meant I had to show up more. That meant I had to come to the end of things just like Peter did. And what I've found is a way through, is a way to follow, is a way to say, oh, okay. So on one level, and, and, and most of what I've taught, been taught growing up, this sort of uh, everywhere version of Christianity is this idea, Jesus is just going around being perpetually dying for my sins so I can get up out of this joy. But what I've found is a Jesus that asks me questions back and says, you still want to follow me? You still want to follow me now that you know what this is really like? You want to follow me now that, I'm, now that you know I put those needs and those desires in you and I'm not going to just magically save you from it all like a, like a cool ride in an SUV? Like that, that degree you're chasing? What I found, just like the discourse with Peter and Jesus, is that when you get to have that real conversation, and it might be a year-long conversation, it might be six months, it might be two weeks, I don't know, but when you find yourself in the place where you're ready to recognize that your denial of who you thought God was is a conversation you can have openly, what you can find is your ability to love other people grows exponentially. To be present with people in a much greater way, to abide, to produce fruit. I know that happened in Peter's life. And so the question that I want to leave you with this morning is when you think about Jesus, when you think about God, do you imagine that Jesus is here present in this world, present in the scriptures, in order to save you from this world or to save you unto it, to be present in it. Let's pray. Thank you for the scriptures, Lord, and thank you even more so for your very real presence with us in this world. that while it's often difficult to understand, to feel that presence, to receive love, that we're invited to be honest. And to allow you to meet us where we are. So would you do that this morning as we come to the table, the place where you've invited us to remind us of your presence with us. Amen.